Well, hey, and welcome to episode six of the Gospel for Everyone podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Krismer, and I'm so glad you're here. Well, on today's episode, Jason, Josh, and I sit down and we talk about how to speak with truth and grace around LGBTQ issues. The backlash of purity culture in today's church environments and how to cultivate a spirit of repentance. And one more note before we dive into our episode for today, uh, we've been getting a lot of really, really good and thoughtful questions uh, about what happens later in the book of Romans, some texts that we'll be exegeting over the next few months. And what I want to say to those of you who have submitted those questions is thank you for being so engaged, for reading ahead, and for already thinking about some of those issues we'll be tackling in the coming months. My ask to you would be to just put a brief pause on some of those questions. I hope that you trust that when we address those texts specifically, that we're going to cover in as much detail as we possibly can any questions that may arise when we get there. All right, well, without further ado, we hope you enjoyed this episode. I did want to say, Jason, I thought you did, man, an incredible job, right? Not an easy text um, in the least bit. But I also wanted to let you guys who are listening in on uh, a secret, how the chicken is made a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, so Jason wrote that sermon probably six weeks ago. And he wrote it after we as a group, there's probably six or seven of us spent an entire morning or an hour or so talking about just the text and things that were going to come up from the text and different observations of different personalities and just all the things that we thought were valuable for people to see. And then after that, last week before, so on Wednesday, we got together again and read through the sermon. And so we read through the sermon and looked at all of the things and talked through some stuff and went, yeah, this is helpful. This is not. So I say all that to say, like, this wasn't just off the whim. You, you got up and opened your Bible and preached this. I mean, you've been thinking about this text for six, seven weeks, right? And so we, as a church, should be really fortunate. And so I know there are some things that were really difficult that were said. I think people were, people may have been upset. You may have, you know, not liked some of the truth of God's word, but it was a topic that was prayed over and different eyes looked at it. So really your angst or frustration or anger is really more with God's word and maybe some of the conviction you felt from the Holy Spirit. So great job, Jason. Again, not an easy topic to teach. A lot of people, I told a buddy of mine, we were teaching through Romans 1 for Labor Day and he went, that seems like not a great idea. <laughs> but I was like, I think it is a great idea. I think it's a what we need to hear in culture. So Again, though, it wasn't something just off the whim. So, man, great job. Yeah, and it does just affirm that, I mean, this has you know, become just such an ingrained part of our DNA to, as we're teaching through the text, not shy away from the hard things, but actually try to lean into them uh, within our context. You know, because there's a, a lot of uh, different directions we could have taken with this sermon. And I think, Jason, you did a good job of leading us to the one that is most applicable to most people sitting in the room. So, just to echo what Josh said, I would... I would agree. Um, and I do, though, since we didn't take much time, there was this piece, part of the sermon where you kind of could have picked one road or the other, right? You could have leaned into how do we teach on uh, homosexuality within the church and how to have those conversations with loved ones, you know, some that that many in the room may be experiencing in their own relationships. 
Or how do we take this the other direction in which we ended up landing on, which is talking about sexual immorality the way that it probably applies to most people sitting in the room, which those two things aren't necessarily the same, right? So I did want to make sure we spent a little bit of time today talking about how to have conversations about homosexuality as followers of Jesus. How do we have gracious, grace-filled conversations that are still not shying away from the truth, but leaning into the truth of God's word? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the encouragement. The um I think the Josh, the important thing that you pointed out right there is there is a communal aspect to our sermon prep. Like this, it doesn't come from a vacuum. There are many eyes who are looking at this and working through this. And so uh, we believe, I believe that uh, scripture is meant to be shared communally. And so having those voices to make sure that we're all on the same page is really important. So appreciate you guys being a part of that process with me. Um, so let's talk specifically to your question, Brendan. The how do we have these conversations? So um, we, I did have someone come up to me on Sunday uh, at Pastor's Point and ask the question. He says, "Look, I totally understand that you you wanted to address what is the sexual issue that we're dealing with in this room." However, all of us in the room do have to have these conversations outside of the room. And so we do have people, our culture is talking about this. So how do we uh, communicate? How can we be equipped to have those conversations? And which is a great question. And we could have absolutely spent an entire sermon just on that. Um, Let me first just point you to a great resource. Um, A friend of our church um, is a guy named Caleb Kaltenbach. Um, I've known Caleb. We went to college together. He's preached here, I don't know, half a dozen times, four or five times. I can't remember. He was actually just here this past summer. He he wrote a book. So if you haven't heard Caleb's story yet, um, Caleb came from a family where both of his parents came out as gay when he was a young man. So think about a three or four-year-old boy, his parents divorce, and both of them enter into homosexual relationships. So uh, if you read his book, it's called Messy Grace. Again, highly recommend this. If This is the best resource that I would say that you need to pick up to have these conversations with people. In this book, he talks about how uh, how he grew up. His mother was actually the president of GLAD. Um, for the Midwest region. She was a uh, professor at the University of Missouri, and his whole life was growing up going to gay pride parades and having um, glad conventions uh, that he was attending. So this was his life. And so he grew up very much believing um, what is taught in the LGBT community, um, specifically about how awful Christians are. And God came and spoke into his life, and he became a Christian and ultimately ends up becoming a pastor. And he says the hardest thing he ever had to do was to come out as a Christian to his gay parents. Like that was the worst thing that he could have ever had to do. And so an amazing story. He does an amazing job with helping to articulate how do we love people well and still hold on to our convictions. Those two things do not have to be... um, pitted against each other. We can do both. There is a tension that we have to uh, to deal with when we're talking about love. I'm sorry, talk about grace and truth. So uh, messy grace, 
is the first one. He did just release, I think last year, a follow-up that he called Messy Truth. So you can get both of those, Messy Grace, Messy Truth. Again, Caleb Kaltenbach, I think it's the best resource to help have these conversations. And we'll go ahead and just link both of those books in the show notes. So if you're interested, just click the link in the show notes and it'll take you right to it. So let me give one quick, you know, I did throw out in the sermon um, that one of the arguments uh, that you will often hear against what I preached is that Paul was not actually talking about homosexuality, that he was actually, what he was addressing was um, the issue of older men uh, being domineering and taking young men into forcible sexual relations. It's called pederasty, okay? And so it was a very common thing in the Greco-Roman world. And a lot of people who come to, with, come to the text with an LGBT-leaning background, we'll use that hermeneutic, that we're going to run it through the filter of that was what Paul was addressing. And I said in the message, that's not what he was addressing. I didn't have time to give any explanation of why that is. So I just want to take just a moment and share a little bit of that right now. So in the New Testament, Paul actually coined a brand new term. He coined the term, that is translated homosexual or homosexuality. That term never existed before. He used it in 1 Corinthians. He used it in Timothy. So Paul creates this terminology. Um, I'm trying to remember what the exact Greek word. um, Aaron, um, oh my goodness, I should have looked it up. uh, Aaronos. Kowski, something like that. It's uh, Aranus, meaning one of you guys can Google it up. Uh, it's the Greek word for homosexual, Aranus, and then it's like Kowski, something like that. It's two different words uh, in the Greek that Paul takes and puts together. Okay. The word Aranus is the word for man. The the Kowski or uh, Kuski. Again, you guys looking it up? Yeah, it's. Uh, oh, I'm going to botch this. Go ahead. Uh, I've already botched it twice. Ersino Kotai. Yes, there you go. Ersino Kotai. Yes, that's it. Ish. Ish. Yeah, we're not Greek scholars. So, it, but that Aranos is the word for man. The Kowski or Koski is the word for bed. And so Paul takes these two words and makes them one. They're, it's never found anywhere else in Greek literature outside of where Paul first does it in his letters in the New Testament. And that's why some people will say, well, that's, we don't have any other uses of this, so we can kind of give it its own meaning. No, no, no. We don't get to do that because Paul formed this word intentionally. And where this word likely came from is from the book of Leviticus, both in chapter 18 and verse uh, and chapter 20, is, is there is a thing called the Septuagint. So the Hebrew Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew, but they had a Greek translation of it. We call it the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew of the book of Leviticus, these words are put together. That Aronos the man and this Kowski, Koski bed, are side by side in the text where it says a man shall not lie with a man as a man lies with a woman. And so Paul 
pointing back to this Torah teaching about man should not sleep with man as a man does a woman. He takes those two phrases that are side by side in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and he puts them together, makes a compound word to create this word in what we find in our New Testament. So he's creating this idea of you don't have sexual relationship with men like you do with women. That's what this word means. And so it has nothing to do with the power imbalance um, that people will often use to describe the pederasty. And here's another thing that we know, why, why we can be pretty confident. This has nothing to do with pederasty because in the text that we just looked at in Romans 1, Paul doesn't just condemn men with men. He condemns women with women. And that was not, that had nothing to do with pederasty in the first century. There was no, there was no dynamic of older women having sexual relationships with young women. That was not a part of the culture. And so Paul condemns them both together, not because of some power imbalance that was being spoken of in the culture. It was the act of sleeping in the bed, having those relations Man with man, woman with woman, as a man does with a woman. So um, hopefully that helps clarify a little bit why it is that we can look at that and say, no, 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 it's not this cultural pederasty thing. It is the act of, of homosexual sex as we know it today. Yeah, thanks for that, Jason. I think that's a good, um, just helpful kind of level set for us so that we know exactly what Paul was and was not talking about. So the second part of the question then is about what, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, how do we respond to those questions well, right? With grace and also with truth. Because oftentimes, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, uh, LGBTQ plus issues can be pretty emotionally charged, right? We, we can, as followers of Jesus, feel a natural defensiveness, like we've got to defend our stance. And again, on the other side of the conversation, I think there's a lot of emotion wrapped up in this issue for good reason. So I guess help us walk through um, what should our approach be to conversations around these issues? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it it came up on Sunday. So after service, I spent a half hour with the lady at, at the end of our um, 11 o'clock service, and she has a grandson who had come out as gay in when he was 15 or 16, and he's in, her, in his 30s now, and his mother had died, and so this grandmother is kind of the mother figure, and this is his uh, her connection to, to his mom, and so there's a lot of emotion there, and she's in tears, like, okay, how do I, am I accepted here at this church with with this um, grandson of mine who's gay, and I don't want to tell him not to be gay. I who, who I want to. I don't want to burn that bridge with him and tell him he's wrong. Um, what do I do? And so, very emotional. These are people that we love, and they're they've got names and faces and stories. And in my my. Um, Suggestion to her was, okay, we, we probably just need to pull back from even the homosexual conversation at this point. Homosexuality is not the issue. Sexuality in general is not the issue. The issue is a refusal to surrender to Jesus. The homosexuality 
is the symptom. I mean, that's that shows a a refusal to surrender to Jesus. It's it's the it's the the effect, not the cause. The cause of the issue is our refusal to submit to Jesus, and that goes with. Uh, all of the heterosexual sins that we commit to, and we'll get to there in a minute, I hope. But the issue isn't the homosexuality in and of itself. It's the refusal to surrender to Jesus. What we need to be concerned about for our loved ones is not who they're sleeping with. It's are they surrendered to Jesus? And who we sleep with may reflect if we're surrendered to Jesus, but one doesn't necessarily create the other. The homosexuality piece doesn't isn't the foremost problem. It is, are we surrendered to Jesus as Lord? That is the issue at hand. So when we're having these conversations with people we love, that's where we need to start. Are they surrendered to Jesus? Us going out to an LGBTQIA pride parade and holding up banners and throwing up signs and yelling at people is not helpful because they aren't people mostly who are surrendered to Jesus. We should not try to hold people to a moral standard that Christ holds us to if they're not deciding to follow Jesus. We shouldn't have those expectations. Now, if someone is claiming to be a follower of Jesus and are walking in unrepentant sin, that creates a whole different conversation. We do have to then share the truth of the Word of God in a way that helps confront their sin. But we don't do that with anyone until they first surrender to Jesus as Lord. We don't lay out the expectation that you're going to walk as Jesus commanded to without first having Jesus as your Lord. So I think that would be my my first conversation. We have to help people know Jesus, and then Jesus helps us deal with our sin. We don't go target the sin first. Um, Jesus does that once we decide that we're going to have our faith in him. And then once we choose to follow after Jesus, all of us should be pursuing holiness with and for each other, helping to reveal unrepentant sin in one another and calling each other to a place of repentance when our unrepentant sin is revealed. So I think we just got to make sure that we get the most important thing first. You can not be a gay person. Our, our, Our salvation is not based upon whether you're heterosexual or homosexual. And the reason we know that is because there will be a lot of heterosexual people who aren't in heaven. It's not about that. It's about surrender to Jesus. Our sexuality then flows out of our desire to follow Jesus as Lord. Yeah, that was really, really good. Um, I was thinking about that Caleb book that I just read it before he came. And there's a quote. And so I kind of looked up, I don't know the exact page number and this, but this is what I remember. He says, we can be accepting, but not approving. We can be loving without applauding and we can be compassionate without commending. And just that when we're having those conversations with loved ones, you you don't have to accept that lifestyle. That's not what we're calling you to do. You, you don't, you know, you you can accept them and not the life. You don't have to approve of their, their sin. And I love that you can be loving without applauding. Like we're just called to love people. That that's ultimately what Jesus calls his followers to do. He calls us to love him, to love others as we love ourselves. And so we can show the love of Jesus and have those conversations. He also says something else in the book of about so many homosexual people already know those scriptures that you're gonna use to beat them up with. So you don't have to start there. 
man, just start with a relationship and a conversation. Ken kind of touched on it a couple of weeks ago when he joined us on the podcast. Like, don't make them a project, right? It's not our job to change them. That's the Holy Spirit's job to convict them. It's our job to maybe show them uh, the truth of God's word, but ultimately change doesn't come from us. And so I love that idea of we can actually have friends and conversations and do this kind of stuff. And like you said, there's more of us who are experiencing either family members or coworkers or close friends who do identify as, as gay and we can still be friends with them. We can still have these conversations and we can still love them. And again, I believe that Jesus will do the rest and they can still point out sin in my life just as I can point out in them because this isn't the end all be all, right? If that's what you got out of this message, I think you missed the heart of where we were trying to drive to is yes, this is a sin, but there's a long list, again, like you said, of heterosexual sins that we're just as guilty of that separating us from what God calls us to live. And so just to focus in on this one is a miss. And, and I hope we all as a church know that. And like, this isn't the unforgivable sin. Yeah. Um, you quoted uh, Caleb there, and it reminded me of a quote from Rick Warren that, that he shared several years ago, which I think is really, really great. So Rick Warren says this, he said, Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. So I think that's a great, great way to to frame it, right? We, you don't have to love somebody doesn't mean you accept everything about them. And just because you don't accept something that someone believes or does doesn't mean you hate them. So both of those are huge lies. We can love people and do it compassionately. And it's not easy. We're not. None of of the three of us are sitting here going, these are easy conversations. Caleb also says, if you have these conversations, it always gets messy. Yeah. Always. Like that's what we have to remember. And so again, if you're having those conversations, also, this is why you need a group because you need people praying with you and for you and lifting that up. Like you shouldn't be going into this alone. Like it's too challenging to do that. So, um, you know, even our pastoral staff, I know any of us would be honored to have those conversations and help sort out stuff with you, man, but trust the Holy Spirit leading and guiding you in those moments. And when it's time to speak those convictions in those relationships, if you are engaged with the Holy Spirit, you will know what to do. Like he promises, he will use us to be his witness. Like I, I believe that. And so when we're praying that way, then, you know, use us, let us have these conversations. I think he makes it really clear. And, you know, you've all been in those conversations before and you're like, how did I, I didn't even know. I, ah, wow. I didn't even know that answer. How did I even say that? Because that's the power of God's spirit living in us. When we're surrendered to say, hey, we just want to go about doing what you've called us to do. Mm-hmm. So again, but to say all that is, I think our staff would be honored to have those conversations with you and just help you sort that out. If you're, you know, if you are struggling to, to meet with a loved one or a coworker or a friend. Yeah, absolutely. I'll say here's the biggest struggle. And this is why the homosexual sin, right? You, you pointed out, right? There's a litany of heterosexual sin. And we'll, again, I think we should talk about them. There was a whole list of them. That was a whole, I spent more time talking about the heterosexual sin in this last sermon than homosexual. The difference is 
the homosexual sin is the only sin that I can think of in the church where we are asked to affirm it. Mm. Like there is no other, there is no church that is a gluttony affirming church. There's no church that exists that's a pedophilia affirming church. Like we don't, uh, alcoholic affirming church. We don't, we don't have any other church. There are no other sins that the church or Christians are asked to celebrate. Uh, I would, I would push back on that a little bit with the idea of divorce and remarriage that we've talked a lot about. There are churches that would celebrate that idea through affirming marriages that are, are not first marriages, right? Right. So, but even then I think there's a difference between, um, a casual acceptance, uh, an acceptance by neglect, as opposed to we're going to put it on our sign. Mm, sure. And so I oh, think it's a marker. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? It's a marker of we are an affirming church. Right. And what are they affirming? We're going to affirm this lifestyle that scripture says is sin as not being actual sin. And so, again, yes, there are lots of sin. And we, again, we put them on the list that, that we've believed in the church, that we've accepted, that we've proliferated by our actions, but we would never actually put it on our pamphlets. Hmm. Um, and so I think that's what makes this sin distinct is it comes with a, not just um, accept me in this sin, receive me in this sin, but celebrate this sin. And I don't know of any other sin where we're asked to then celebrate the sin. So that makes it really difficult. Yeah. Well, we did have a couple of what I thought were really um, thoughtful questions that I'm sure are being asked by more than just this one person who asked them around some of the the culture that's been built up around some heterosexual sins. I'd love to get to those. Um, and then if we want to, you know, talk a little bit more about any of the the specifics of the things we laid out this past Sunday, we can we can dig even further into that. So there were a couple of questions, and I'm I'm going to paraphrase these because they were longer questions with a lot of details. So the first one is this. Um, One uh, attendee asks this question. Christ said that to look at a woman lustfully was to commit adultery. Does this mean online dating where you judge potential partners based on pictures of them is inherently sinful? Is there a way of quote unquote checking someone out that doesn't cross the line into lust? Who wants to answer that one? All right, let me tackle. I think there is absolutely a way to look at someone, find them attractive without it crossing a line into lust. I I don't think those are necessarily. Um, I went to my niece's wedding and I looked at my niece and I said, wow, she looks very beautiful. There There was nothing lustful about that. So we can, it absolutely can be done. You can find someone attractive without lusting. So I think, the online dating piece is a brand new realm, and I thank God that it didn't ex- exist when I was trying to find my wife. So they, we weren't doing that, so I've never been online online dating. Uh, that's never been a part of my life. Um, but to find someone attractive does not necessitate you are lusting after them, or to find someone not attractive does not necessitate uh, that you're just uh, somehow... I don't know what the word had not being lustful. I don't know how to phrase that, but it doesn't necessarily have to 
one has to be leading to the other. Yeah. Yeah. I thought of James one fifteen, uh, or starting verse 14, but no one, but one is tempted by one's own desires being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. Right. This desire of like you're tempted and then you, it conceives and it becomes sin and then sin gives birth to death. So just looking at a woman, like you said, and saying, oh man, she's really pretty online. Man, I'd love to get to know her, but there's nothing there. Right. If that temptation goes further into the lust, then it's giving birth to sin, which sin then leads to death, right? And so because of our culture has just been so terrible with, even within the church, with talking about sexual stuff, we we just don't know how to even, like, we just don't know what to do with it. And so we're stuck and it's like, I can't even look at anybody. Like, you know, didn't some of the Pharisees do that? Like they literally blinded their eyes as not to like look at, Females in their culture, and they're just running around knocking into stuff. I can't remember what Bible college professor told me about this, but it, but basically that was the point of like because they didn't want to sin and look at a woman like that, they literally made themselves blind essentially. So they're just running into things. That's not the point. It's not what Jesus is getting at. What Jesus I think is getting at is like this judgment of like, oh yeah, you're saying that, but hey man, actually your heart. What's in your heart when you are looking at that woman? Yeah, it's easy to say I've not committed adultery. Well, okay, let's go one step further, which is always the interest for Jesus. So again, to answer the question, I'm with Jason. Yeah, online is the thing now of 2022, and that's just how it is. Like, you know, you have to find boundaries to make that happen. So then there's probably some of you who are listening who found your spouse on Mm -hmm. some kind of dating site. Cool. That's awesome, man. Great. Hopefully you honored God in that, and you still have those opportunities to do those kinds of things. So for sure. And I think we need to point out, like, that's just— it should only ever be one small piece of the puzzle, right? Like, yeah, you find them attractive and you want to have a, con- but that's not the end all be all. Like there's got to be more to the relationship. There's got to be a deeper level. Like that may be uh, the initial spark, but man, there's so much more to a relationship and getting to know someone and hearing their heart. And we all know people who, uh, didn't find someone attractive when they first met them. But once they got to know them, all of a sudden it's like, they check all the boxes for what I want in a spouse. And you learn to love someone you weren't initially attracted to. And so I would say it goes both ways. Yes, you may find somebody attractive and realize, yeah, they're not the one because they don't pass any of the tests (laughs) that help me understand that this is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. And then there may be somebody you don't find quite as attractive but they do pass all the tests and you realize, oh, that's just one little small piece of the puzzle. And that attractiveness is going to go away anyway. Gravity has an effect on everybody. So there's more, there's more to it than just that attractiveness piece. Um, but you don't have to think of it only as lust when you're thinking about someone, whether they're attractive or not. Yeah, 100%. I think there's a lot to be said about the... Um, I think there's a lot, to, a lot to be said about the motivation going into dating to begin with, right? So online dating, right? It is now the most common story for the two youngest generations that are online. Like meeting someone online is now the most common way to develop relationships with peers, with uh, potential partners of the opposite sex. It is, like that is the, the truth that we're living in at this point. So by no means, I don't think what any of us say that is inherently sinful, 
I think it starts with just the motivations. You know, there there are, we'd be ignorant to say there aren't, you know, full apps and million dollar industries built around poor motivations when it comes to online dating, right? Quick hookups and that sort of thing like that. Yes, that is inherently sinful. If you are pursuing online dating for the purpose of a shallow relationship in which you physically benefit from, that is inherently sinful. Yes. However, if your motivation is hey, I, I really want a, I'm looking for partnership. I'm looking for a long-term God-honoring relationship uh, with a man or woman. Uh, by no means is that inherently sinful. So I think that's what we're all saying. Uh, it is a new method, right? Over the last 20 years, probably online dating has become this new method that has kind of sweeped the, the younger generations. Um, and it might present some challenges we didn't have before, and it might eliminate some challenges we didn't have before. So it's just new. Yeah, and this is where, as followers of Jesus, like all the answers aren't necessarily in the in the book, so to speak. Uh, we can't open up to a verse and text to go, "What did Jesus say about online dating?" <laughs> right? Yeah. But we can go. Hey, he does give us wisdom, and so how how are we as believers wise? What are we doing with the Holy Spirit? How are we using people to hold us accountable? And so those are the kind of places. So again, some of the always the arguments are, "Well, Jesus didn't talk about it." Well, yeah, he didn't. They didn't have the internet. <laughs> you yeah. know, hanging out in Jerusalem. So, but he, we do have the Holy Spirit and he can, like you said, he, we can judge our motives really, really quickly to go, why are we doing this thing? So I think we as believers can come into this with with right knowledge about this. Yeah, that's good. Here's a kind of a question along the same lines from the same uh, attendee listener um, that I think is really interesting as well. So uh, here's the question. I grew up in church in the uh, in the 2000s being taught that dating was only ever a pathway to sin and destruction now in my 30s i still carry the baggage of purity culture and i find it impossible to date uh, i have to confess i am resentful towards god for giving me the desire that i am forbidden from pursuing should i go ahead and embrace celibacy or is there another option for my life wow that is a uh, all too common um, story that we have heard. Uh, actually, we addressed that very topic when we did a series in Proverbs this last year um, because it is a real thing, that purity culture, for those of you who not quite understand what we're meaning, there was a book that was um, by Joshua Harris called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and it was kind of the uh, beginning of this idea that all dating is bad. And we're going to move away from dating, and it only inherently leads to bad things. So we got to ditch that model and go back to a courtship model. Um, any kind of kissing before marriage, holding hands, like any physical touch is evil, and it only leads to bad places. And so this was taught in a lot of youth groups in the late 90s, early 2000s, and it really did become this anthem for a generation that said sex is bad, 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 bad. It's only going to be bad until you get married. And then, okay, now you can do all the stuff and guilt-free. And But we were so programmed that sex was bad that it really did, as this, uh, this listener says, it traumatized so many people even of thinking about going into a dating relationship. So I just always like to start by saying, I'm sorry. I hate that 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 was a thing in the church that has continued to wreak havoc in relationships even till today. Um, but I think what we're saying now is there is an option of dating. Dating is not a bad thing. It is the 
avenue for us to get to the deeper levels that does move beyond just the physical realm. I can be attracted to somebody, somebody, I date them, I spend time with them, I connect with them. And that is what helps me, allows me to filter out who I want to spend the rest of my life with. So again, I think it goes back to what you said, Brendan, the motivation is everything. Am I going into this relationship with the idea that this might lead to a, a marriage potentially? Or am I going into this to make Friday nights a little more fun for the next six weeks until I get bored and go find somebody else? Those are kind of the, those are two different motivations. And one can be godly. I don't know that the other one ever is. And so dating in and of itself is not a bad thing. Again, we have direct commands related to sexual activity in the midst of dating, but dating in and of itself is not an evil thing. Um, I think it always comes back to what if, what is your motivation in the dating. Yeah, that's really good. I uh, I think of a book I read, I don't know, last year, year and a half or so ago by author Rich Velotis. He's a pastor in New York City. Um, he he's, It's called The Deeply Formed Life for anybody who's curious. He's got five sections in there. Just about what does it look like to be a disciple and really the one that jumps out for this conversation. And again, I'm not by any means going, hey, you read the whole book and you're going to have to agree with everything. So don't don't count me there. But what I'm saying is he actually writes about uh, one of the chapters is healthy sexuality value um, in the conversation of so much of the church is not talking about sexuality and how it actually does impact our discipleship of Jesus. And so he talks about both of the views, the the nothing it's all bad view or the just do whatever you want view and right how neither one of those views are the correct view. And there's a, there are boundaries in which God has set it up. I always love how you say, Jason, monogamy, how we've changed it as a culture to go from one man, one woman is now one man, one woman at a time. Right. So as long as we're just, you know, again, you say not, not in a group, but in a line, I, I just love that thought process of it because that's really where our culture has taken it of like, well, I have to just kind of try and figure it out. I'm only with one person. No, like we, we can't do that. Like God had clear boundaries and rules. Again, if you are, are interested, you should go look up that Proverbs series when we talked about a sexual because the reality is, man, the Bible talks about sex a lot. It's it's in there because it is something as human beings that God has given us, that it is this thing that God gave us in the very beginning, and there are very clear boundaries and rules that he's put on it. And over time, we've just shifted those things. But again, that's a good resource. There there may be some other ones out there um, that maybe you guys have read and, and done. We we as a staff would love to even you know have those as, as opportunities to share with people because this is a conversation. If you're in a group and you're not talking about this stuff, then you're shying away. And it doesn't mean only just the 20s and 30-year-olds should be talking about this, should they, Jason? Because uh, no. I remember we talked about Proverbs, and I was like, hey, what do we do with this? And you were very clearly, hey, this is all of us. Yes. Every generation, we need to have a better understanding of Jesus's uh, ethics here, the God's desires for us when it comes to sexuality. So we all need to be having this conversation. There is no statute of limitations on the sexual ethics from the Scripture. Nobody ages out of God's expectation for how we operate sexually. Yeah. And so again, I, I, just to continue, the pure, I grew up in purity culture. Again, I have friends that have been impacted by that with Jason. I hate that for you. Um, but I will, let me just say something about celibacy. If you feel like God's calling you to that, then honor him by doing that. And maybe it's for a life or maybe it's for a season or maybe you have been dating and you've been doing it all wrong and you just don't have this 
understanding of value and all that. I mean, saying like, I'm not going to enter into that. I'm going to stay away from that could be what God is calling you to for this moment. I know personally in my own journey, when I finally got serious with the Lord, like it was like, God very clearly was like, I need you not to speak with the opposite sex. I need you to put me first. And that's what he called me to because I had a really unhealthy understanding and so I thought in that season, that's what God was, was asking of me. And again, that pushes against culture because we have this also this weird, nobody should be alone, right? Well, Jesus talks about this and it's honoring. And so if that's the season you're in, man, walk in that season. And maybe it is just a season and out of this, God will honor you and, and bless you maybe with the, the spouse that, that he does have for you. So so again, I always want to touch on that. We don't even talk about celibacy enough in the church either. Yeah, that actually biblically it is a blessing. It's a gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, we serve a Savior who was celibate, and the Apostle Paul, to the best of our knowledge, he was not married. And so he said, I wish everybody was like me. And so the two most prominent spiritual figures in our history of Christianity did not have this husband-wife relationship. So um, you can be fully human without it. Yeah. yeah, and what does Paul say? You can get married if you have to. Yeah. Right? That's essentially. <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah. But I think you're not because yeah, it'll save you a lot of trouble. Right. That's what he's saying. <laughs> right. But I think it is a calling. It is a very clear yes. call. And so again, if you are having those conversations and maybe somebody has recommended that, like, hey, maybe you just need to stop. Obviously, you don't have clear boundaries. Maybe you need to just spend time with Jesus and you because clearly the other things get in the way. You should do that. A lot of you young folks, it's like you go from one relationship to another, to another, to another. And maybe Jesus is saying, I need you to stop and just be and let me fill you. Let me actually be enough. Because what I'll tell you is the most realizing thing of marriage is, is my wife does, like, does not complete me. And we have this lie that they do. And she, she's not that. And for me to give her, it's unfair. And so, so many of our culture believes like that's one spouse will make everything better and complete me. And that's just not the case when it even comes to sexuality. So, mm-hmm. And again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to the older generation. You said all these young people jump from one relationship to another to another. We've got people in our church who've been married two, three, four times. And they mm-hmm. go from one relationship to another relationship to another relationship. Um, and I think what the same advice applies. There probably is going to be a moment where you have to stop. Like, this is not the thing. You got to get out of the idea that, that this marriage thing is going to be the thing. Like mm. the next guy or the next girl or the whatever. Uh, we got to come back to the place of, is me and Jesus enough? Like, that is that enough? Because obviously from our conversation last week, clearly you've made that an idol probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so. 100%. Well, we're uh, we're getting on here in time, so I want to do. I want to spend about five minutes here at the tail end talking about the close of your sermon, Jason. You left us with with this idea of uh, repentance, right? So you gave us three points along the lines of repentance, what it what it means, and what it looks like. That starts with conviction, then it moves into a, a moment of confession, and then ultimately life change, right? It's us walking away from that sin and walking in the direction of righteousness through Jesus. Um, so I want to spend some time talking about that. Specifically, I think confession is a hard concept within the church. I think it's really, really easy for us 
to understand our sin and when we need to confess it to, to Jesus, right, through prayer. But what does it look like uh, and how should we confess, when should we confess our sins to others, to other followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let me back up just a touch. I think we do need to to just be reminded of the fact, the whole point of this message was trying to get to the place where we recognize the lies that we have exchanged for the truth. Like we can see it when we talk about homosexual relationships. Most people in the church, we can see that. Okay, I've not bought those lies. I'm not buying into that. But we do have a whole litany of lies that we have accepted in the church. And so that was where I kind of try to land this message was saying, look, this applies to all of us. When Paul first wrote this, he wasn't writing primarily, I don't even think, um, yeah, primarily to the homosexual sin. I think that whole first section is all about men and women committing deplorable acts with one another. Okay, so I think we have to find out where have I bought the lie and traded the truth of God for a lie. And again, I gave a whole list of them. You can go back and find those on the website. Then comes the conviction, confession, change part. When you realize, oh no, there's a truth of God that I have not lived, that I've actually went against. I've done the opposite of what he's commanded. Is there a conviction there? And if there's no conviction, there'll never be repentance. I always use the illustration. You think about a kid on the playground. You ever remember that kid picks up a rock and throws it across the playground and hits a girl in the head. And the teacher grabs the little kid and bounces him across the and says, you tell her you're sorry. And the kid says, sorry. And you know, you know, he doesn't feel a bit more remorse than the man in the moon. And he can say sorry as much as he wants. There's never any conviction. He doesn't actually feel remorse, which means there'll never be actual repentance until he feels, oh my goodness, I hurt someone. My actions did this thing. I can't believe. Until he feels that, his actions and attitude will never change. So just saying I'm sorry is never going to fix the problem. We actually have to have Holy Spirit felt conviction. Um, It's what David felt when Nathan came and confronted him with his sin. It was like, oh my gosh, you're right. I, I did this terrible thing. And that conviction is what leads us to repentance. So do you feel the conviction when you realize my actions have actually um, decimated the glory of God? Secondly, that confession piece, your great observation, Brennan, I think for many of our Catholic friends, they think about confession, they go into the booth and they say the thing and the priest absolves them. That's not the kind of confession we're talking about here. Again, we don't need a priest. Jesus is our priest. We can confess our sins to God all the time. We do that. Naturally, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've had that confession. You've fallen into a habitual sin. You've confessed it over and over and over, and you still struggle with it. And that's where we have to go to James, where James talks about. Um, so let me back up. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins. So we've confessed our sin to God for forgiveness. But there is a piece of the puzzle in James that says, but we confess our sins to one another for healing. There is a there is a, a need for us to have people in our life that we're confessing our sin to. So when do we confess it to others? I would say when it's habitual, when it keeps coming up, when you're still struggling, when it when you can't seem to um, to stop the sin, then you need to confess it to somebody else. You gotta you gotta have somebody join you in the journey 
to help fight your sin. That's where you're going to get healing. And I think when it comes to sexual sin, there almost always has to be a confession to somebody else. Like there, I don't know that this, because sexual temptation is so rampant, I don't know that anybody can fight this alone. So I think that piece, you need to find somebody to fight with you. Yeah, and that's James 5, 16 for anyone who wants to reference uh, uh, what's said there. And it's just this idea of confession and really accountability, I think is what what we're talking about. Yep. And then lastly, that should lead to change. Like there is no repentance if you're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Repentance always requires change. Uh, Again, I go back to, I think it was... um, John the Baptist and all these people coming out and they're convicted of their sins and and he leads them. Their, his baptism was a baptism of repentance. And there was some, he uses like, there's three different groups of people. It says the soldiers came up and said, well, what shall we do? Well, you got to stop leveraging your life and be content with your pay and stop swindling people. Uh, rich come up, what do we do? Well, you've got more than you need. You got two cloaks, give to the one who doesn't have any. I mean, over and over again, all of the pieces of repentance come with an action step. There's going to be some change. You're going to do something different because of your repentance. So unless that piece is there, then repentance isn't there. So uh, hopefully those three markers help us all to begin to realize, hey, when I see this lie that I've believed, here's what I need to do to get it right. Yeah, it's really good, Jason. Uh, Yeah, I think that list is so important. Right, and there could have been other things, but it was really intentional how you walk through that list. Um, you know, you talked with just our casual sex hookup culture to uh, to pornography, to marriage, divorce is not a big deal, right? Like, and, and so for me, I I hope and I pray, right, that everyone in the room felt some conviction because as a church, we all are becoming very complicit in believing these lies right? Some of them, more of them, right? And so I think for some of you, if, if it was anger you were feeling, maybe maybe it's a, an inward look. Maybe that was the conviction that you are upset and somebody's told you you're wrong and you don't like that and you just want to keep doing your thing, right? And so maybe it's sitting with this to go, wait a minute, maybe maybe it is time to to actually own up to this lie that I've bought into and this lie that I'm perpetuating. Right? As as people of God that we just are okay with it, right? Again, I'm not saying we go out and start beating people with the Bible, but inwardly, we start looking at our families, right? That's what I started thinking of. What will the lessons that I start teaching my kids, my sons, when it comes to this? Because I can't just put my bury my head in the sand because culture is going to teach them, <laughs> right? And clearly the church at times, we ain't doing a great job. So how as a dad am I going to make sure that I am teaching them the things so that they live the life Jesus has called for them. And in the moments when they do fail and stumble, because that's the reality sometimes, I have to teach them this piece too. And so it can't just be you feel sorry. There actually has to be some, some change to this, right? We have a group of guys who out of our Proverbs series have been meeting for the last nine or 10 weeks um, who just are. It, we just, it's an integrity group. They're just trying to walk with one another and hold one another accountable. And there's been some really amazing relationships and friendships that's been formed in that. There's been some guys who have found freedom. And every time that freedom has been found, it's been in the midst of 
confession, either to their spouse or to that group to hold them accountable, right? And so those are clear steps that you need. There's some guardrails that we all can put up, but there is definitely that, I'm with you, that to another person Mm -hmm. step. And I think for a lot of people, I was just talking to the leader of that group, and he talked about confessing to his wife and how incredibly challenging and hard that was, and but how honoring it was for and it just an incredible thing to see that and the way he just shared it with me like man it was so cool like there was no hidden mask facade it was just honesty and it's because he's just is living in that lifestyle and it's such a cool thing to see and so i think for a lot of people who are maybe struggling with these things it's be it's because you've lived in the dark and satan wants to keep you in the dark and jesus is saying come to the light. And that's what confession is. Confession is coming into the light so that another person can carry those burdens with you. And, and that's what we're trying to encourage you to do so. So you, you just feeling bad and going, all right, God, I'm sorry. All of us know that it probably just not going to change anything. So uh, just to jump back on what you said there, I appreciate you, you speaking that truth there. The, the one thing that I will say is people do get upset and it is emotional because you look at this list and you say, well, I've done five of these things. What are you saying? I'm out, that I'm a terrible person? No, no, no. We can all be forgiven. That Repentance is available and confession is available to all of us. But to your point, you say the church hasn't done a great job of addressing this over the generations, over the specifically over the last 50 years, I think. And so one of the things that I will often say to people is, yeah, yeah, you're upset and you don't like it because I called out and this fits you. But I always ask the question, but what do you want for your grandkids? Hmm. What do you want the church to be teaching? Do you want, do, okay, do you want us to lower the standard or do you want us to raise the standard back to where Jesus was, where Jesus put it and say, hey, for your grandkids, man, if they, if they put the standard back to where Jesus did, how much better will their lives and marriages and integrity be if we put the standard there? Yes, I'm, yes, I'm convicted because I didn't live up to the standard. It doesn't make the standard bad. It makes me bad. Hmm. And so, so true. We ju- I just want to, what do you want your kids? What do you want your grandkids? What do you want the church to teach them about what God says about these things? Do you hope that they live a better story than what you have led or you have been taught, what I have been taught? Don't we want something better for them? So let's hold the standard where Jesus holds it. Let's repent where we have fallen short, but let's not get mad at the standard. Um, let's make sure that we're, submitting ourselves. This is what Jesus said, and this is what we're going to do. And this is what I want for the next generation. I want them to, I want them to have it better than I did. Amen, brother. And that circles right back to that Tim Keller quote, right? Man, we need to know that our sin is deeper and darker than we could have ever imagined, but his grace is so much more glorious than we could have ever imagined. So. Amen, man. What a truth. All right, guys. Well, that's a, a wrap on today. Thanks so much. Amen. Well, thank you so much for hanging with us. We know that was a longer episode, but we wanted to make sure we did justice to the questions that were asked because we really do think they were that important. As always, you can find additional resources both in the show notes or by going to quadcity.church Romans. On that page, you can submit any questions you may have about Sunday's message as we would love to tackle those right here on this podcast. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you have a great week and we'll see you back next time.